$10,000 for me by myself. For that, you get the head, the tail, the whole damn thing. Hello and welcome to episode 8 of the Mark and Me podcast. As always, I'm your host Mark and joining me on today's episode is Carl Gottlieb, the man himself who wrote the script to my favourite film ever made, Jaws. Now if anybody out there has ever listened to the Skip the End podcast or you know me personally, you will know how I am obsessed with this movie. It is my favourite film ever made. I do talk a lot about The Thing by John Carpenter, and yes, that's very, very high up there, but Jaws is my most watched and most loved film of all time. I think it's got one of the greatest scripts. I think that Steven Spielberg, for that early stage of his career, made something that's just magical. I think the dialogue, I think the story, I think the characters. I mean, Quint is probably my favourite all-time movie character, so you could pretty much say I'm a big fan of Jaws. Now when I launched this podcast I had a lot of names on a list that I would love to speak to. Some of them might be way out of my reach, yes I understand, but it's something to work for and something to aim towards. But Carl was very very high up on this list. Knowing how much I love Jaws and when I read his book The Jaws Log maybe three or four years ago, I thought to myself if I could meet someone involved in Jaws I just want to meet Carl, I want to sit down, I want to talk about all these questions I've had on my mind for many years And I got to do this, and I'm so, so grateful that I do. And I really hope that you guys out there love this interview as much as I do. Now, as I just mentioned, The Jaws Log, this book for me is the best, greatest book about making movies that I've ever read. It's not just me saying this. People like Brian Singer, I know, have gone on record and said it's his go-to book. It is an absolute incredible read, and it's one of those books that I think you won't be able to put down at all. It's, it's, It's just fascinating And I hope that after you've listened to today's interview, you will go and check it out because I fell completely in love with it and I've read it three or four times since. It's it's absolutely awesome. But back to Carl. Carl is an absolute genius. He was writing this script on set. He was asked to rewrite the original script because it wasn't doing what Steven Spielberg wanted. So there he is in the 70s sitting on set writing day and night as the film is in production. It's absolutely awesome to know how he got these amazing results being under such pressure. And I have so much respect for him. It's it's incredible. But what I want to do now is get to this interview. The next hour is me and Carl talking mostly Jaws. And I really hope you all enjoy it. So here you go. So I wanted to start today's interview by getting to know you a bit better. When you were younger, at what point did you want to be a film writer and an actor? Was it very young or later on in life? Well, I I came to it as kind of a natural evolutionary steps. I was always a writer. I I always wrote. I won 
prizes for English composition when I was in grammar school and in high school, and I edited the college newspaper and the yearbook. At one point in the 50s, I got caught up in the glamour of advertising. I thought, oh boy, it would be neat to, to write advertising. And then I realized that it wouldn't be so cool. And I did a dual major in drama and journalism and figured, okay, I'll be a critic like Kenneth Tynan or Walter Kerr or Brooks Atkinson. Then when I, when I graduated, I made a vow to my 21-year-old self that I would only work in show business. I wouldn't stop gap jobs like office temp or cab driver, carpenter, waiter, bartender, those kind of jobs. And for the most part, I was lucky and continued to work you know, in the business, so to speak, uh, sometimes for no wages, sometimes for 25 bucks a week and meals, hanging lights and doing uh, MC work in a, you know, off-Broadway coffee houses in New York. But I always uh, you know, managed to eke out a living in the business, and that brought me to an improvisational theater company in San Francisco in the 60s, which was a great place and a great time to be there. And then after that, the show was a hit. I became an actor in the, in the review, and then we moved the show to Los Angeles, where we were seen by movie and television community, and I got hired to do a very popular TV variety show of the time called The Smothers Brothers Comedy Hour. It was a network TV show, and they were hiring new, young, funny writers, performers, which included myself and Steve Martin and Rob Reiner, Bob Einstein, who's Albert Brooks's older brother. It was, it was uh, quite a collection. And after that, uh, we won an Emmy that year, which is our Television Academy Award for comedy variety writing. And uh, after that, it was just, you know, one job after another and a friendship with uh, Steven Spielberg, who had the same agent as I did and was the new kid in town. Eventually, I got hired to be an actor in Jaws, an event. and then after some discussions about the weaknesses of the script, I was hired to do a rewrite. The rest was history, so now I was an author of an iconic film. You know, I wor- I've kind of worked in the business ever since. Hearing some of those names that you got to work with at a young age is just amazing. I mean, is that how The Jerk came about? Yes. Uh, Steve and I had uh, known each other. Uh, you know, I knew him when he was just a, a nightclub performer, young comedian, because uh, it was a much smaller world for comedians in those days. Yeah. There weren't that, many, that, weren't that many places to work. The comedy boom hadn't happened yet. Uh, so I was aware of his, his work. We had mutual friends who introduced us. And then we, uh, we did the Smothers Brothers show, which was great for all of us. And a few years later, uh, after... After Jaws and after my next, the second film I did after Jaws, I was anxious not to be typed as a genre writer. So I was happy to take a job doing a rewrite on the Richard Pryor film, which was one of his more successful pictures, a movie called Which Way Is Up. And then in the meantime, Stephen's career was blossoming. He was starting to perform for larger and larger audiences and a producer at Paramount Pictures who had the foresight to appreciate him, gave him a two-picture deal to write and, and star in some films of his own choosing. And he asked me to collaborate. He said, I've never written a movie. You've written two, and you know, including a, you know, a comedy and the biggest grossing picture of all time. I mean, he didn't say it that way, but yeah. it, it, it certainly qualified me for the job. And we worked well together. We knew that. We started, when, started to, to write The Jerk. 
<laughs> and for the first two weeks, we just basically showed up, stared at each other, and looked at the typewriter and wondered what it was we were going to do because we had no no brief. We just you know, write a movie for Steve. Duh. Okay. <laughs> and then one particularly when nothing was happening, Steve said, "You know." <clears throat> A line that always works in my act, never fails, is I was born a poor black child. Then we laughed. And I said, well, what if, what if that were true? What if, what if Steve Martin, the white actor, was born a poor black child? What would that have led to? And so we wrote the opening pages of The Jerk you know, on, the, on the farm in the Mississippi Delta where he kind of learns that he was adopted, that he's not a black sharecropper's kid. Then... The movie that movie went through some evolutionary steps, changed studios, went through a couple of major rewrites, but eventually it came out the other end as The Jerk, which was, you know, a second iconic film in my chosen genre, which was comedy. Amazing. So you, you just started to talk a little bit about Jaws, and obviously you were cast as Meadows in this film, so you were going into that to be an actor. So the thing that blows my mind is you weren't hired at that point to go in and help with the script or do any rewrites. So how was it when you then were on set and you were working with your friend Stephen and you suddenly thought, oh my God, I'm actually rewriting Jaws here? What happened was that, that um, Stephen thought it would be helpful if I was you know, in the, in the movie and, and could be around because he knew he was going to hire a large number of inexperienced local actors to play the small parts of the town people and, and uh, the incidental speaking roles. And there was a lot of crowd scenes. And I had experience in improvisation with managing that kind of, you know, erratic and unpredictable uh, dialogue and, and actors. So he, he thought I could be useful working with the crowds and, and developing inexperienced, unseasoned local actors. And he said, you know, pick a part that's kind of, you know, all through the movie. And I said, they, you know, for an actor that was a great assignment. Okay, I'll go through the script, find a character who has a lot of lines and is in a lot of scenes, and uh, I'll try to, you know, convince the, the powers that be that uh, I'm the right guy. And Steven said he wanted me, and the producers in the studio agreed, so I got hired as an actor. And then I, I got a copy of the script from Steven uh, with a note on the cover saying, eviscerate it. So I wrote him, just personally, you know, one friend to another, and essentially, you know, just couple of single spaced pages of you know random thoughts it was a kind of a memo on you know what i thought the weaknesses of the script were yeah <laughs> i was I, I i've looked at that memo since i i, I still I saved my copy of it and one of the uh, many jaws you know historian documentarians uh, persuaded me to dig it out of the storage box where it had been since 1975 <laughs> And I read it, and I said, wow, I, I was really right and really wrong in, in the memo. <laughs> At uh, the, the right part was I said, um, you know, if, uh, if we do our job right, people will feel about going in the ocean the way they felt about taking a shower after Psycho. And sure enough, for the next 41 years, I'm introduced to some, you know, they learn I, I wrote Jaws. They go, oh, my God, you know, when that movie came out, I didn't go swimming for a year. or I was, I was afraid of my swimming pool. I was a kid. I wouldn't get in the bathtub because the shark might be there. I mean, I heard, I've heard all these stories for the next 40 years. It was, it was right. And in, in, in the uh, AFI, you know, 100 best horror films of all times, Psycho is number one and Jaws is number two. So, you know, <laughs> that, that connection lasted. That was my correct prediction. My incorrect prediction was 
and and this was kind of based on the the, the minor horror genre of the time, you know, teens in trouble. I said, why does sexual misconduct have to be punished with death in movies? I mean, here, here's this nice young couple that goes off to have a, a fling in the bushes at the campfire, and the girl gets, you know, eaten. And, you know, that, that seems like that really kind of old-fashioned retribution. You know, the, the sin must be punished. Yeah. <laughs> and then, of course, it's the, one of the most memorable death scenes in, in the history of movies, and is incredibly effective. And it's and it's when you think about it, it's just like a teen horror slasher movie where the promiscuous kids are the first ones killed. And they're still doing so, it now, aren't they? In Scream and every well, bloody film that comes out. Exactly. You know, the teenagers in the woods look out. <laughs> Do not go upstairs as well if you're home alone. Do never go up those stairs. Yeah, don't go up the stairs. Go. Don't go in the basement if you hear a strange noise. <laughs> You'll be glad to know I'm not going to be telling you about how I don't go in the water since seeing that film, but I'm sure you wish you had a dollar for every time you got told. For sure, absolutely. So you got that original script, and you know I, I've read about the some of the eight changes that you made, and I'm really glad that you didn't go with the affair because I just think it seems so wrong for me in the story, and I just don't see it working in the film. No, and, and it, it was, we started shooting and that, uh, whether to include that subplot was still on the table. We hadn't completely eliminated it. We were rearranging the movie and we were trying to think of what we could cut, what we had, what we should keep. And, you know, we thought, well, that's a pretty good sexual tension. If, if the three guys who were on the boat, one of them has cuckolded the other, when they have to work together to survive, that's an interesting dynamic. That would be effective. That would be useful to the plot. But then, by that time, we had the actors in place. The actors' persona, specifically Richard Dreyfuss and Roy Scheider and Lorraine Gary as the wife who was supposed to have the affair, it was unthinkable that those characters would do that. I mean, those actors were just so likable and and so uh, effective uh, in the personas that the uh, actors gave the characters that we said, no way is Ellen Brody, this loving mother who we've seen in the house, you know, there's no way is she going to sleep with this bespectacled nerd oceanographer. Now, in the book, in the novel, the oceanographer is a big, handsome, strapping guy and it brings echoes of her past to her. and She wants to relive her youth and have a fling. Uh, but, you know, that, that just seems, again, as, as you point out, it was like so inappropriate that I started rewriting two weeks before we started filming. And then, you know, Three or four days into filming, I was you know wrestling with what what we were going to shoot next. We decided you know made an executive decision just you know let's just cut that affair. Let's not even bother with it. it. Takes too much time. The benefits are not worth the the sacrifice, and we would be giving up credibility. And in, in a, a movie like Jaws, you can you don't tamper with the audience's suspension of disbelief. Even now today, when I look at Brody and his wife and the kids and the house by the sea they are still the couple you want to grow old to be like i would yeah. never want that tarnished exactly and and uh, and that was already well underway you know you know i had been to the set you know i'd seen the actors in rehearsal and performance and Stephen agreed and the producers agreed this subplot may have been appropriate to the novel and the earlier draft but it was a disaster waiting to happen if we actually filmed it so we just cut it Thank you for doing that. (laughs) It's it's among the things that you'll never miss in Jaws, uh, that and the subplot that the mayor is connected with the mafia and the the development of a real estate project on the dunes. 
So you were living, I believe, with Stephen on set. Did was there some summer house that you actually shared with him for a few months? Is that right? Yes. The the uh, the Stephen had finished his first feature film, which was a location picture shot in Texas. Stephen despaired at the way his time was wasted. At the end of the day, you'd have a long shooting day. In the case of Sugarland Express, there was a lot of cars and driving stunts. You know, a lot of logistical management that had to be dealt with as a director. And then at the end of the day, in addition to going to see the dailies of the work that's already been shot, was in the days before video assist, uh, you'd have to wait for the film to come back from the lab. You'd have to see the dailies. You'd have to figure out about having dinner. You try to get up, take a shower at the end of the day. Well, are we going to eat at the hotel? Are we going to go out to eat? I mean, it was just a lot of waste of time. He suggested, quite wisely... And since we were going to a resort location, a lot of vacation houses, that the company just rent him a house and hire a housekeeper, that would free up a lot of time. When it became obvious that I was also going to do a rewrite on the picture, uh, Stephen said, well, listen, you know, don't, don't stay in a hotel with, with the cast. Stay in the house, and that way we can talk to each other all the time when we're not shooting. We'll be, a, we'll be at breakfast, we'll be at dinner, we'll be at, you know, late at night. You know, if you're staying up late typing the work for the next day, you know, you can try out lines, you know, I'm, I'm in the room or I'm down the hall. It was a very practical and very sensible arrangement. I don't I don't recommend it for every writer-director team. If you live together while you're making and rewriting the movie, that's probably the best way to do it. And the bond must be so strong and so so secure. It's It must be brilliant. I mean, like you said, it doesn't work for everyone, but to know how effective it was for you and Steve, and it's obviously worked when you see the evidence on screen. Yeah, yeah, and 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 uh, you know, I always, uh, I, I used to kid Steve, and I said, you know, we could be the Billy Wilder and IAL Diamond of of the seventies. <laughs> uh, but he, he was already planning uh, Close Encounters. Wow. And and uh, and, I, and I was getting other offers, so we went our different ways, and then of course he became the the legend and the billionaire that we slowly drifted out of contact. So I don't see him now, except if we're both in tuxedos at some event or at the memorial service for one of our peers. What was it like, the pressure of writing on set? Because you don't hear about this, and you know I've read a lot about you being on set and writing there and then while they're filming. You put yourself under a lot of pressure. I guess so. I mean, in retrospect, it was you know foolhardy and insane. Yeah, but, I want. I'm being polite, but the, the, working under those time restrictions, you're crazy. It's it's not. Who would want to do that? The the only other example I can think of is there's a um, I think it's a John Huston film, Beat the Devil. Anyway, it was it was filmed under equally chaotic conditions, and it's a it's saved by the cast and the, and the director who were superlative, but it was you know kind of a Hollywood legend about you know the how ill-advised they were <clears throat> to make the picture under the conditions they did. Uh, and it is not a successful movie, but it's, you know, knowing the backstory, it's fun to watch. Anyway, so it, there weren't many movies made like that. So, and this was a major studio picture. It wasn't an experimental improvisational film that uh, people like Robert Downey Sr. and uh, John Cassavetes were doing. This was, you know, a regular popcorn movie. And I think the thing that saved us both from from you know being you know crippled by self doubt and anxiety was that it seemed like a perfectly natural way to work. We were friends. We had collaborated on some story ideas 
when we met, we had the same agent, and he, he was very progressive in his agenting and then wanted to package his clients, and he put Stephen and I together uh, to, you know, to write movies for, you know, for me to write and for him to direct. And we couldn't sell one of our ideas. We went out with two or three different films, and we couldn't sell them in the pitch meeting to the studios, because Stephen was locked in to direct. And nobody would take a chance on the new kid. We we had you know we had worked out a kind of a modus operandi for, for working together, so we had that. We kind of knew what we were doing. We had uh, similar sensibilities. We we knew the same films. We knew the same music. We had the same roots and you know the same industry of the of the sixties that that uh, we had come to town to see and be a part of. So it seemed at the moment quite natural. I hadn't written another movie that had been produced, I'd written, you know, three or four film scripts that had been, that had been uh, commissioned, but never produced. And uh, my experience was uh, in television, which is very, in those days was very quick. You know, you write it, they shoot it, goes on the air, you go on to the next episode. Uh, and uh, so you don't, you know, you don't worry, you don't agonize over polishing because there's a there's a story editor and a, and a, a, a script super a script consultant on whatever show you're working on and they can fix it if you can't and the show gets made under any circumstances because they can't can't broadcast blank air so it always gets shot and, and you get the experience of seeing your work translate from the page to the screen to an audience and then on to the next so my experience was with you know with writing quickly and and I, I hope well, you know, that was that was the assignment, you know, write it fast and write it good in yeah. television. Then there was the uh, a personal connection with Stephen, and we weren't living in the same house, so if, if the, you know, housekeeper had made something terrible for dinner, we could commiserate over the meatloaf, and, <laughs> and, and then we would meet at the in the communal area where we would have, you know, we would have a, a breakfast, and then the drivers would come and take us to the set, or if I wasn't working as an actor that day, I would stay home have a second cup of coffee, you know, smoke a cigar or a pipe. I've, I've, I've fashioned myself a Tweedy writer in the countryside. <laughs> <laughs> and then I would return to the typewriter and type away so I would have pages to show at the end of the day. Uh, and then Stephen would come back, and we'd go to dinner and look at the dailies and talk to the producers and go over the material that was written that day and, and uh, yay or nay, and then and rinse and repeat. <laughs> It didn't seem as crazy as it sounds uh, at the time. You know, if you were there, it seemed like a perfectly natural way to work. One of the great things about doing improvisation successfully uh, is that you you lose your fear uh, of being unprepared. Yeah. Because in improvisation, the unpreparedness is a virtue, and you kind of strive to be a blank slate every time you start a new scene based on a suggestion from the audience or based on a newspaper headline somebody has thrown it at the stage. So, uh, you know, I wasn't afraid that I could get things right the first time because I was used to that from the stage work. I knew I could create decent dialogue because I did that all the time without writing it down, I, just by speaking. And, 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 of course, a lot of that was the, the, the cockiness of youth, you know, well, you know, a young person at the top of his game, you know, of course I can do this. <laughs> and, you know, there, there are times when that doesn't work for you. But in the case of Jaws, it was like a perfect storm of good news. So there's 
one big sacrifice you had to make on set, and it must have been one of the hardest decisions you ever made, was writing yourself out of a lead role in this film. Yes. <laughs> well, it was, again, at the time, yeah, it was, it was, it was painful. But, and, and this is the interesting thing about, about Jaws, which, which I, I stress to everyone uh, when I talk about that movie. It really was professional Hollywood production where everybody was doing their job as only good Hollywood studio professionals can do it. I mean, from the grips to the art department, to the set decorators, the sound department, the people who built the shark, uh, the costumers, the camera crews. Everybody was a pro, and everybody was doing the best they could under the circumstances. As a result, the the uh, the incentive was to kind of you know make sacrifices for the picture. In 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 the cases of the below the line crew, it was you know largely you know who you have to fuck to get off the island. Yeah, because uh, island fever set in. It was a difficult location. Uh, half the locals on the island resented the intrusion of a Hollywood company into their bucolic vacation setting, um, and the other half were making money from us, so they were happy to see us. So there was a town-gown split going on. But when it came time to reduce Meadows's part, you know, my my character, the script kind of demanded it. So, in the spirit of you know sacrifice for the greater good. I said, okay, you know, so so Meadows will have fewer lines, you know, that that's uh, and and he won't be in this scene because uh, the, he he's really not needed. Let's let's stick with the leads. As it turns out, it was fine. The first you know, first year of release uh, on the earlier release prints, not on the DVD versions and the video versions, but in the original prints, I get uh, really spectacular billing on screen. It's you know. Roy Scheider, Richard Dreyfuss, Robert Robert Shaw, Jaws, with Lorraine Gary, Carl Gottlieb, and Murray Hamilton. The, my billing was was uh, was set, you know, before the before the character became in, became reduced. So I had co-star billing. As the years went by, and they re, you know recut the prints and, and uh, or, or remade the prints. I I think the billing has been adjusted. I don't enjoy the same. Uh, screen position I did the first few years but you know that, that that's okay you know the movie was good so I've got a few questions about Jaws that I've always wanted to know and if I can ask anyone you're going to be the guy that knows them so the first one I've got is about the reshoot so the famous headshot that still makes me jump even though I've seen the film a hundred times was this actually a reshoot was it originally going to be done in daylight um, yes, the, the the first in in the draft that we started shooting with, uh, the Ben Gardner's boat is discovered by day, and it's discovered by the oceanographer, the police chief, and the publisher of the newspapers. For some reason, I'm I was in the boat with them covering the story. Yeah, and and we actually shot or started to shoot that scene in one of the takes. The, the way the scene was staged. Uh, Dreyfus had never operated a boat in his life, so the <clears throat> the marine advisor was crouched out of sight below camera, steering the boat blindly from under from from below deck. Camera boat was anchored and shooting, and my job was when we saw the wreckage floating. We, my job was to reach over and pull it closer to us so we could tie up, and that 
Schneider and Dreyfus, uh, you know, Brody and Hooper could go on board and discover the dead Ben Gardner. Uh, on, on the third or fourth take of the big shot, I fell overboard. I misjudged my center of gravity. I reached out too far and literally just tipped over and slid headfirst in a graceful dive into the water, fully dressed, soaking my microphone and you know, kind of ruining the take. And then because I was a secondary character, uh, they didn't have doubles and triples of my wardrobe, so they had to wait for my costume to dry. <laughs> so we scrubbed. eventually we just scrubbed the scene and said, look, we'll do this later or a different way. We can't blow a whole day shooting waiting for Carl's clothes to dry, which was you know, the right decision. So it was left to shoot later. And as the script evolved... And we had the, you know, we said, oh, the suspense of opening, you know, cutting open the shark and the suspense of going out and looking for Ben Gardner's boat. That would play better at night. It would be spookier. We could shoot it back at Universal. We could shoot it on the back lot on, on the, the, a, uh, a feature of the back lot that's called The Lake, which is a large still pond on which all kinds of, you know, water shots are made. So the decision was to reshoot it just Scheider and Dreyfus on, on Dreyfus's boat, milk it for all the suspense that we could. So it was, it was shot that way. And the discovery of the head was shot in a tank a few days later when they shot the other underwater tank stuff with the you know, shark, wrecking, shark wrecking the cage and things. And then the picture was put together and Stephen was unhappy with the head popping into view. He said, listen, that's not scary enough. It's scary, but it's not scary enough. And we had gotten, you know, the head, the mold made, the poor actor, who wasn't an actor, he was a local character from the vineyard, had sat quietly with, you know, straws in his nose to breathe while they made a life cast of his entire head. Uh, and so we had, the, we had the head, and we had uh, fragments of the boat. We had the, the, the hull with the hole in it, that little section of boat. And Stephen said, I just, need, I just have to reshoot that. And the studio said, no, if the film's finished. You, know, you, you, know, you don't even have a, a, a charge number for, you know, to, to build. So Stephen said, I'll pay for it myself. And he had been on the lot for a long time. He had done a lot of television at Universal. So he was a known commodity. So when the art director and production designer and you know, some grips took the head and some lumber... They took it out to the uh, editor's house, where she was. She was working in her. She had a workspace in her garage in the back of the house, and a little little tiny swimming pool. It was a small tract house in, in the San Fernando Valley, uh, just outside Hollywood. They moved everything to her house, put the boat in the in the in the swimming pool, put black visqueen, you know, over yeah. it to make it dark uh the water was too clear because it was a swimming pool with a filter so they dumped a gallon of milk into the water to make it a little cloudy is that what it is milk mm, yeah milk they just you know wow put milk in the refrigerator <laughs> gotta do something you know thinking on the spot yeah Andy. Then and they made the shot from you know with different approaches and different angles and finally steven got a, a version that he liked and sure enough when it came back from dailies it was appropriately scary so it went. That's the shot that's in the movie. It was a reshoot. There's a there's a couple like that. The uh, 
in the nighttime scene on the boat when it, when they're interrupted by the shark ramming the hull and uh, uh, springing a leak yeah. below deck. That shot of the lumber of the, of the hull splintering was you know some of the same lumber carted over to the driveway at Joe Alves's house where they set up the shot. Got a garden hose to spray water from the other from the backside of the of the timber, and they shot that close up of the wood. That was you know somebody kicking kicking the hole with a with a boot with a with a holding a, a hose when it's cut into the film. It's entirely appropriate. That was made after the fact because you know it was one of those things that well we need a shot of the hole you know here we do we have any no okay we'll make one. Well, we don't have any money. Well, just you know, put some boards up and light it properly and shoot it in my driveway. And that's what they did. That's amazing. So another question that people talk about, and obviously I want to hear it from yourself, but Dreyfus and Shaw did not get on on set. And I believe this adds to the performance definitely on the screen. I think there is definitely more than just a good solid acting performance. You can see they've actually got some real beef with each other. Is that true, yes. or am I am I looking into it too much? There was a tension between the two actors, between the two personalities. Shaw was, you know, Shaw was Shaw. He was a drinker. He was from that great English school of actors that included you know, Richard Harris and Peter O'Toole and Tom Courtney and Albert Finney. They were all drinking buddies at the, the Royal Shakespeare Company. They all, and he was, you know, kind of a a uh, protean actor he was also a novelist and a playwright uh you know and, and uh, he thought i think that he was kind of slumming doing this picture because he was a last minute choice he was available you know he had a very good contract he got paid a lot more than uh shiner and dreyfus he was you know aristocratic actor slumming amongst you know amongst the hollywood types dreyfus was a very serious young actor who had, uh, like like Shaw, he had always wanted to be an actor and had succeeded early in life. He had got, he was, I think later on, he was the youngest actor to ever win an Academy Award uh, for The Goodbye Girl. But at, at that time, it was like only the second or third picture that he had ever done. So Shaw, you know, mocked him as a rank amateur, and Dreyfus resented Shaw's uh, superiority, and... Shaw drank and smoked, and Dreyfus did neither. So, if Shaw was drinking or smoking on the set, it would annoy Richard. And Shaw was one of those human beings who kind of thrives on provocation. Yeah. You know, you, you, I mean, at a cocktail party, he'll find the the evolutionist and the creationist and make a point of introducing them so that they can have an argument. Yeah, and then he'll sit back and enjoy the, the fireworks. So he he would he would tweak Richard. He would just you know kind of poke him or nudge him and prank him in different ways. My favorite story would be that that occasionally when they were doing like when they were on the boat when it was limited, you know, you couldn't walk away and and then come back. You had to you know stay on the boat. You couldn't step walk into the water. And in, in, under close circumstances. When they were doing the close-ups of a scene, the close-up was on Dreyfus, and Shaw was off-camera, you know, doing his off-camera lines. They would put the the sticks, the slate, in front of the camera, just at the beginning of the shot, you know, scene twenty-five. Yeah. You know, take six, and just as the 
Clapper came down, the last thing Shaw would say to Dreyfus before the scenes started to film, he'd say, Richard, mind your mannerisms. <laughs> what a git. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God, I love, I absolutely love Quint and just hearing stuff like that, knowing that he's that guy off set is, oh, it's amazing. And, 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 and again, on the boat, another, another time, Shaw was, was uh, smoking, or either smoking or having a drink, I forget which. Or might, both. Might have been a sick. And, and he said, you know, I, 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 wish I, could, you know, I wish I could quit, like many smokers do. But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to quit one of, the, one of these days. And Dreyfus said, well, why not now? And he snatched the cigarette back out of Shaw's hands and threw it overboard. Jesus. <laughs> how, did he, how did he react? You know, with, with with shock and anger, and you know, but then there was a take to be done. There was, you know, there was, there was work to be done. So, all right, you know, this is score one for the kid. Wow, he had some balls to do that. Fair play to him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, Shaw was bigger and stronger than him too. But you know, it, it was not physical. It was, it of course, was, uh, part of the dynamic between them, and they both were smart enough actors to realize <clears throat> that it was working for them. Yeah, they 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 didn't they didn't say to themselves, uh, "Come on, let's be friends." You know, while we're making this movie, we're going to be on the island a long time. First of all, they didn't know they were going to be on the island a long time, and but but uh, secondly, they both had an approach to acting that involved their off-screen and you know, blending their on and off-screen personalities, and that ultimately it worked great. The chemistry between them was obvious on film. So uh, nobody said, "Oh, come on, guys! You know, make up! You know, hey, we're all friends here." Everybody was smart enough not to say that. I've read and I've seen documentaries and I've watched YouTube videos all about the way that Bruce was and how hard he was to operate and how much of a nightmare it caused and delays. Now, I know that in the film originally we were supposed to see a lot more, and in the end we took the monster away, and it was more of our imagination and just the fear of maybe it being there. Was this inspired by the original The Thing movie, where you don't see the monster much until pretty much the end? Is is it? Did you get inspired by that, or was it just down to bad luck? No, no, we, no, no. no. Was, we were definitely inspired by that. We about you know a week or two into whatever, whenever the shark was supposed to work and didn't. You know, it was obvious. Okay, the shark is going to be a problem, and and it, and it was an escalating series of problems. So, Stephen left. One of the benefits of us being, you know, roughly contemporaneous in, in our on film studies, we all we knew the same. Like I, I said much earlier in the interview, we knew the same films, we knew the yeah. same music. So uh, when Stephen said, you know, maybe if we don't show the shark. You know, we can we can do we can do it like they did in you know the thing and I said of course you know the thing what a perfect perfect choice you know we agreed okay the thing worked fine without the monster but with evidence of the monster if you, if you go back and look at that old black and white movie I haven't ever since but I remember that the Geiger counter was a was a you know a, a, a foreshadowing device you know whenever the Geiger counter speeded up and the radioactivity was getting high, you knew the monster was somewhere about and doing bad things. So we started writing stuff where you didn't necessarily see the shark, but you were 
uh, fearful for the victims. The two guys on the dock almost get killed, but don't. You know, no shark necessary. Not even a fin. Just some, just some, you know, wreckage of some wood being pulled back and forth by underwater lines. The terror of the moment. It just and made no me one. feel. It just made me think of the force that it had, and it would so much stronger than those two men together. It just made me realize this is a big problem you're dealing with now. Yeah, and 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 uh, comically, uh, an off-camera aside, Stephen wasn't happy with the actors, uh, especially one of them was. He was a he was a professional actor, but he was from Boston and he wasn't a Hollywood actor, and he was a pain in the ass. Kept asking for a bigger dressing room. I don't know what it was, but he was he bothered Stephen for some reason. There was no chemistry between them. When it came time to shoot that scene, uh, Stephen put that actor in the water over and over and over again. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of takes of that you know scrambling up out of the water. You know, that the, the actor kind of paid for his uh, misbehavior uh, off camera by being put through this you know grueling exercise you know all day so another one that you you could probably clear up for me quite quickly is the son copying Brody's moves in the kitchen famous iconic scene I believe this wasn't written and this was something you just kind of it was improvised and you kept it in is that true or yes yeah, so that, that that is found art uh, that scene was very pivotal to the movie and it was important Stephen thought he should cover that scene from every angle, because at that at that point in the production, we didn't know if it was going to be Brody's story or Ellen's story or, or the uh, Hooper story or or Quint's story. So the dinner scene was filmed from every possible angle. And we I think we spent three days at the house shooting that one scene. There was a lot of delays because it was uh, it was shot during the day, but it was the windows had to be blacked out, and it was a real and it was a it wasn't a set. It was a real interior, which meant it was you know cramped quarters for the camera and the crew but there's a lot of downtime and it would just be easier to leave the actors in place rather than have them go out to a trailer you know smoke take you know have a snack and then come back and shoot so, so there's a lot of time where the actors just roy and the kid were just sitting at the table waiting for lights to be moved or the camera to be angled to be changed and during one of those lulls roy noticed that the kid was imitating him because Roy was trying out gestures and you know figuring out business to do as actors will and uh, he noticed what the kid was doing so he, he uh, called Stephen over he said look you know look at this and he you know he did some stuff and the kid imitated him and the cameras were you know fortuitously positioned to, to get that shot and so Stephen moved moved a camera very quietly into position and rolled film and and captured that moment uh it was like purely fine you know, the scheider saw it first the actor saw it called the director the director was enchanted by it and filmed it and it went into the movie and is 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 there to this day what's weird is 40 years later that that actor you know he's he's a grown-up guy he's what 45 50 years old and he's a local, so he's you know he's not a particularly successful. I mean, it's not like he made a career out of acting after playing that kid. But if you you know if you buy him a drink, or if he's in a group of people and the, the, the subject of Jaws comes up, somebody always says, "Hey, make that face." 
<laughs> with the claw. Yeah, and 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 he does that, and it's really weird to see like a fifty-year-old guy making that face because you know he's it's his his you know he's he's got bad he's got bad teeth now, <laughs> and he's kind of grizzled. <laughs> Facial hair, and yeah, it doesn't look the same. But he still does that little, and you can when he does it, you see you see that iconic little kid making that face. You can you, you know you can see it in the older guy. I'm going to ask you a question now, which I think is quite difficult, and I'm going to put you on the spot. But who is the favourite character that you wrote for? Uh huh. I I would say I would say Dreyfus, partly because we were friends, and I had been instrumental in getting getting him into the picture. Yeah. You know, I knew him, and I kind of liked him, and I liked his style, I liked his way of speaking. And because he was an actor, not an improviser, although he, he did do improvisation, uh, he was essentially uh, an actor with a capital A, like, like Shaw. And he would say whatever you wrote as best he could. You know, he didn't try to fix the lines, he didn't try to make them his own. He didn't add his, you know, ad lib touches, which is something all actors do, and uh, something that that uh, Scheider would do, and Stephen encouraged it because, you know, very often the actor is the person on the set who is most familiar with the character. Not, the, you know, writer and director are responsible for everything on the screen, but the actor is only responsible for his one character, and actors, good actors, spend a lot of time. They will quibble over dialogue and they will, you know, suggest changes and they will ad lib on the set. Uh, and, and Scheider did that. Shaw did it less and uh, Dreyfus did it hardly at all. So as a writer, I appreciated him and his character the most. And he was the most interesting to write for because he was, you know, like me, he was a, a, a literate, educated guy. And uh, I, the only problem was he couldn't pronounce Latin shark names. We had to... <laughs> was that a lot of takes? Yes, I, and also we had to eventually loop Carcarid and Carcarius uh, later, and kind of because he kept getting it wrong, so we just you know just let it lay the way it, it, the way he said it on, on the set, and then fixed it in post production by re-recording that one word uh, or two two words actually, and putting it in his mouth at the right, at the right time. Another try. That's why Verna Fields got an Academy Award for editing. So this is going to be a tough one for you. What is your favorite line from Jaws? Because I don't think it's the famous, obvious one. I I reckon you've got something else up your sleeve. <laughs> uh, the, the line I like is a, is, is a line that Hooper has. He says, uh, this guy, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm sitting here arguing with a guy who's waiting to be a hot lunch. You're not going to realize, you know, this thing... It's a problem until it swims up and bites you in the ass. Amazing, absolutely incredible. And and the my other favorite line and favorite actor is the woman who played uh, Mrs. Kintner. Uh, that was a very difficult speech to write. Yeah. For, to, but write it, I did. And she is a professional actress and did a wonderful job of it. And Scheider, to his credit, said, "Listen, don't stage slap me. Really hit me." So she did, and it was multiple takes, and you know he, he, he had a you know kind of a sore jaw at the end of the day, and and the actress herself, she's eighty something now, 
uh, and she still works. You know, she has a she runs the community theater on Martha's Vineyard and is active as an actor and a teacher. She stopped because she, she became of an age. But for the first thirty years after the movie came out, people would come over to her and ask her to slap them. <laughs> <laughs> I bet her hands well sore. Yeah, that, that's how weird audiences are and fans. You know, oh come on, slap me like you slapped Roy Scheider. That is really? crazy. Really hard in the face. Yes. Go on, leave a leave a handprint on my cheek. Yeah, exactly. And she eventually she 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 felt weird doing it. I mean, she you know it's, it was a little off putting for her, but uh, but she did. And then she stopped. She said, "Enough is enough." I don't know why am I why am I slapping strangers for something I did thirty years ago. <laughs> the truth is, my favorite book that I own is the Jaws log. The moment I picked it up, I pretty much read it in about two sittings and it was only sleep that got in the way of finishing it that night this yeah. book is the biggest selling movie book of all time you know the credit that you've had from famous film directors and other movie actors that say this is the bible for them this is the book they can't put down what is it like knowing that you put that whole book and log together on set and it really is a perfect book which not many people achieve i i uh... Again, it, 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 it's a, a, uh, a tribute, you know, not to me, but to the, to the times and the, and the spirit of that movie. The, the way that book originated was uh, it was the dawn of, of uh, cross-marketing and cross-promotion. Nowadays, it's, it's a huge thing, and George Lucas made hundreds of million dollars, controlled the merchandising rights for Star Wars, a drafting error in the contract that was to his immense favor. But it, it, when Jaws came out, you know, we were lucky that they made, they made a lunchbox with a shark on it and uh, and some T-shirts and some coffee mugs. That was the extent of the promotion. But Universal was aware that cross-promotion was the wave of the future, and they had just acquired um, an executive who had come from the publishing world in New York, and they thought, well, let's do a coffee table book about the making of Jaws with a third of it written by Steven Spielberg, a third of it written by Zanuck and Brown, and a third of it written by Peter Benchley, who wrote the novel. We took all these pictures during the production. We'll make some nice stills, and we'll do a coffee table book to publish simultaneously with the movie, with the release of the movie. And Steven had asked me to ghostwrite his third of the book because he was too busy doing prepping Close Encounters. I, I agreed and didn't think about it for a while. And then the studio called and said, look, Zanuck and Brown are too busy. Peter Benchley is, uh, you know, kind of miffed that the, the movie is getting, you know, more publicity than his novel got. So nobody's writing their part of the book. Can you do the whole book about the making of? And at that time, the only model that I had was a wonderful book by Lillian Hellman called Picture, in which she uh, haunted the set of Red Badge of Courage, which John Huston directed. And uh, she did a, a long piece for The New Yorker that was later published as a book. And I recalled that, and I said, you know what, that was, I've always been a New Yorker reader, I always wanted to be a New Yorker writer. Uh, I'd like to, yeah, sure, I'll, I'll certainly be able to write a, a book about the making of the movie. First of all, I was there for much of the time, physically on the set. Uh, I can talk to the people who were there when I wasn't there, because when the dialogue was finished, I, mean, I guess mid-July, early August, whenever my role, you know, my, my role as an actor had wrapped, 
the last of the dialogue had been photographed. There was nothing left to do but shoot the shark and the men at sea. And that they didn't need me for that. And so they cut off my per diem, wrote me a check for the rest of my writing, and you know, sent me on my way. But I, you know, everybody who had worked on the picture was still working at the studio and available. I could interview everybody, including the little person who had doubled the, uh, you know, did the Australian shark footage and yep. was 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 almost killed. Uh, I, you know, I got to interview everybody who, uh, who I needed to interview. Everybody was available to me, and I wrote the book in a relatively short time. I remember I, I accumulated all my notes and all my interview material, and I went off to a uh, 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 a diet place, a, a shark, a, a, a fat farm, uh, and I went on a restricted calorie diet and sat there with a portable typewriter working on the book instead of going to exercise classes. And and uh, in, in a relatively short time, the book was finished, delivered, and published not quite simultaneously with the release of the movie. It was delayed a, f- a few weeks, but I think the movie came out on June 4th or June 6th, somewhere like that. And then the, uh, uh, the book came out July 5th or something. And then, you know, it was favorite. there was another book uh, contemporaneously written uh, by somebody who lived on the vineyard, a photographer who made a lot of her own photographs. But uh, my book got better reviews of the two, and then uh, then it it couldn't be stopped. And then it was then it was like the movie just and and because it was the early days of cross promotion, I was able to make my own deal for the book with a publisher. I didn't have to be a wage slave to Universal. Nowadays, if you do a novelization, you get a flat fee for writing the book and no royalty participation or negligible royalty participation. But I had a cousin who was a publisher, very successful publisher in New York, and he spoke to my agent and said, here's what you ask for when you're doing your book deal. So we did, and what was a low-priced mass-market paperback, I think it sold for a buck and a half, you know, airports and supermarkets, but everybody bought it. And the real money that I made from Jaws was not from my salary as a writer or as an actor, but from the royalties from the Jaws log, which obviously continue to this day. And my cousin, the publisher, is the one who convinced me to do a, to recapture the copyright for myself and reissue the book in, in the, the 25th anniversary edition, 2000. And the book is still selling and I'm still getting royalties, so I'm, I'm happy about that. I take it your cousin hasn't had to buy a beer for a very long time. <laughs> for sure. <laughs> and what was it like when you read Brian Singer said it was his favorite book, knowing that that guy is one of the best filmmakers out there? I was I was thrilled. I mean, I, 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 the uh, uh, Soderbergh did a similar un, unsolicited was quoted in a Rolling Stone article, and he mentioned the book, and somebody called my attention to it, and I when we did the reissue, I you know I. I reached out to Soderbergh, and we're, we're kind of friends now. Uh, I reached out to him and asked him for permission to use his quote as to blurb the book, and you know, and he agreed. I mean, you know, he was a fan of the book, Ian Bryan and, and Eli Roth, and it worked out just fine. Steve Martin gave me a great quote. He said, the, the Jaws log is not just a delicious candy bar, <laughs> but an excellent book. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. And this is a question that's going to be quite tough, and I'm not sure if you've been asked it before, but is writing painful? 
I've had, I've been asked about process, uh, and the, the, this is very. It's not a hard answer. It's very simple. Yes, writing is painful. It's lonely. There's no immediate feedback. I've described the process as making ever decreasing concentric circles around a keyboard until there's no place else to go, and you have to write. Uh, all writers are familiar with the avoid. Uh, and I'm here to tell you that I am one of the biggest avoiders of all time. Very often, the only thing that has been an incentive is a uh, a paycheck at the end of it. I'm, I'm, I'm a writer for hire. Yeah, I'm not a composer. I'm not a. I'm. I, I wish I were like Stephen King and woke up in the morning and just had to write every day. I don't. I I, I hate the process, but it comes easily, and I'm well paid for it. So it's as good. It's as good as a profession as any. And all these years now that have gone by and all these people that talk to you about Jaws and everything, is there anything that you regret about Jaws? And when you watch it now, you think, I wish I could go back and change that. Or are you completely satisfied and happy with everything? I I, I don't dwell on past work. Uh, you know, you, that was the best part of being an improviser. You, you would, you'd improvise a set and when the evening was over, you, you, you know, you're done with it. For better or worse, that's, that's... That's it. Uh, with a film or a book, you know, you've got the work is, you know, continues to live in the, in a form that's frozen whenever you set it. I mean, they, there may be director's cut. I don't think there's any author's cut of a, of a novel. I mean, you know, writers don't get to go back and do it again. Some people, some writers do, like Stephen King, they love to write. Yeah. Um, uh, but no, no, I'm 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 perfectly happy with the way the movie turned out. I don't, I have, I have no regrets about any of it. Uh, and I guess part of that is the success of the film. I mean, if it had been unsuccessful, I might have, gee, what, I, what, what they should have let me do is this. But since the cliche, you know, the proof is in the pudding. You know, there it is. You know, I was happy to be a part of it. Now, <laughs> let me get on with my life without people telling me how much. They fear the ocean as a result of what we did, you know, 40 years ago. Are you ever going to go on record and reveal this mistake that's in the film that you keep teasing on YouTube videos and interviews and you say that it's bang obvious and there's this massive fault that you keep seeing but no one else has picked up on it? The glaring error that, that I had noticed that, that, that no, nobody did for the first 10, 15 years of release is that when... Uh, Brody is in the office typing up the coroner's report. It's the uh, the lo- official-looking document. There's a close-up of the document in the typewriter as he's typing. And the document was not a real coroner's form. It was one that was dummied up by the prop department, you know, sent to the print shop, came back, and they had, you know, 30 blank pages to use in the shot. The prop man who was responsible for creating that page spells coroner's report coroner's report c-o-r-n-e-r-s wow and it's, you know it and it's printed on the form the camera picks up the type you what you're watching is the, the typewriter keys typing out shark attack which is you know the thing that sets the whole yeah plot in motion uh but because you're looking at the typewriter keys and it's a it's a very quick insert in the middle of a you know scene in the office Nobody ever saw it, except me, and, and I, and I, I just wouldn't tell anybody. I said, you know, find it, find it if you can. So I've, I've got to go now and get my Blu-ray and pause it and look for this. Yes, you, 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 uh, you, you'll see it. I mean, if you go on, there's a 
Facebook page, I think, called Jaws Finatics, F-I-N-A-T-I-C-S, Finatics. Yeah. That's what they call it. It's a closed group. Uh, and, and, and then there's another Jaws group that's a larger group. But on, on those pages, you'll find long threads about you know the, the lack of leaves on the trees or how everybody's wearing uh, you know one kind of costume in one scene how Dreyfus's glasses keep changing the, the model of rimless spectacles that he wears is different in different you know different parts of the movie as, as but you know I think I might avoid that because at the moment for me Jaws is the perfect film and I don't want people ruining it and changing my opinion and looking out for stuff. I enjoy it for being my favourite film ever made so I'm just going to leave it there and let it be. Absolutely. You know, if you love the Mona Lisa, why are you going to obsess on the the brush strokes? Exactly that. Da Vinci knew what he was doing, let it go with that. Thank you, Carl. You've given me way more time than I expected, and it's an absolute pleasure to speak to you. And I, I am so grateful for what you did for this film and all film. And you are an icon and an absolute legend, in my opinion. And I just, I'm so thankful for giving me your time today and hearing these thoughts. And I'm so grateful. Oh, happy to be of service. So there it is. Me and Carl talking mostly Jaws, to be fair. An absolutely incredible guy to be able to sit down and talk to. And as you heard, I had to pretty much stay quite composed because it's an absolute dream come true to talk to the man himself that put pen to paper and wrote some of my favourite dialogue and lines in film history. I really, really hope you all enjoyed that interview as much as me. And, you know, like I said, please check out this book, The Jaws Log, because it's a great, great read. And hey, if you're a bit sick of hearing about Jaws now... You should hopefully have seen this film anyway, but go and check out The Jerk, because it's one of the funniest, greatest comedies as well, and that's all down to Carl. Again, everyone, I say it every week, but it blows my mind how many people tune into this podcast. The feedback I got on the Jason Muse episode last week was just incredible, and I really hope you're all on board for, there's no pun intended, on board for Carl as well, because it's been such a pleasure to speak to such an iconic writer. On the next episode, as always, I'm not going to spoil it, But it's going to be out in a couple of weeks and I've got a big special coming out with many, many people involved. So there's a lot coming up. Keep the tweets coming. Keep the Facebook comments coming. All the feedback is incredible. Keep letting me know if I can improve. Keep letting me know what you love, what you don't like. If you like us on iTunes, please leave us a five star rating and leave us a comment because it all helps. Keep checking us out. In the meantime, check out Skip to the End, my other podcast. And again... Thank you for listening and I'll speak to you all again in a couple of weeks time. (laughs) 